thank you to course director dr. michael cookson and faculty dr. william oh and dr. matthew resnick for joining us this afternoon the aua would like to thank astellas and pfizer inc for providing an independent educational grant in support of this webinar dr. michael cookson Thank you very much. I'm Mike Cookson. I'm the professor and chair of urology at the University of Oklahoma, and I've had the pleasure of overseeing uh, the AUA CRPC guidelines through several amendments as well. Um, our learning objectives today are listed on this slide, and what we really want to focus on is the management of non-metastatic CRPC. So we're going to identify the active agents and discuss their mechanisms of action. We're going to analyze the evidence and the outcomes that led to the new guideline revisions. We're going to talk about how these um, new therapeutic breakthroughs improve the decision-making and ability for us to um, extend uh, outcomes in patients with non-metastatic disease, as well as review the CRPC guidelines as a whole to sort of put those in proper perspective. So we have a, a great faculty. We have one hour, kind of a lunch and learn today. So that concludes that. So it is my pleasure now to move on to the program and introduce to you Dr. Matthew Resnick. Um, Matt is currently an assistant professor of urology and health policy at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Uh, he did his medical school and his residency at the University of Pennsylvania, and he did his oncology fellowship at Vanderbilt University. Matt, we're delighted you could be here to learn about M0CRPC. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Mike. Um, <clears throat> so the first thing I, I will do is acknowledge uh, Alicia Morgan, uh, a medical oncologist at Northwestern, who, uh, who, from whom much of this presentation was based. So uh, as a brief overview, you know, our plan for the next few minutes is to review a little bit of the background of, of biochemical recurrence after definitive local or local regional therapy, really talking about this M0 space, to review the, the updated guideline, um, to really spend a few minutes diving into the two landmark clinical trials that inform the guideline amendment, and then really to summarize uh, where we're at and where we're going, and then, and then hand off to Dr. O. So by way of background, this is likely not news to anyone on this webinar. You know, prostate cancer is extraordinarily common. So in 2017, a little over 160,000 new cases of prostate cancer. And despite aggressive local and local regional treatments, somewhere between 15 and 40% of individuals will develop recurrent disease, inclusive of both biochemical recurrence and metastatic disease within 10 years of initial treatment. What we know is that the median time to biochemical recurrence is two to three years, and we know that PSA doubling time, PSA kinetics after local treatment, is high, strongly associated with survival. Now, there are multiple definitions of biochemical recurrence after local treatment, so the AUA defines biochemical recurrence as a PSA of greater than 0.2 measured at least six weeks after radical prostatectomy with a confirmatory check with PSA persistently 0.2 or greater. The EAU similarly defines PS, uh, biochemical recurrence of a PSA of greater than 0.2 on greater than or equal to two confirmatory measurements. And then for radiation, uh, after radiation treatment, ASTRO uh, defines biochemical recurrence as the nadir PSA plus two. 
Now, um, <clears throat> we also know that all biochemical recurrence is really not created equally. And this is a landmark study that was published in JAMA about uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 years ago by, by Steve Friedland. So this was a retrospective study of nearly 400 men after uh, radical prostatectomy who subsequently developed biochemical recurrence. And what the investigators found was that PSA doubling time was really a very strong predictor of prostate cancer-specific mortality. So if, you, if we unpack this, uh, this table, what we see is that you know, men with a PSA doubling time of three months or less had a hazard of death of nearly 30-fold in excess of those with a PSA doubling time of 15 months or greater. And this is a dose-dependent response, meaning those with a PSA doubling time of 3 to 8.9 months had a hazard of death of nearly 9, and then those with 9 to 15 months had a hazard of death of, of nearly 2.5. And, a half. and this, is, this finding is, is represented in the Kaplan-Meier curves here, which really bear this point out, meaning uh, those with a favorable PSA doubling time, again, those with a doubling time of 15 months or greater actually fare quite well with a very minimal, a small risk of prostate cancer-related mortality compared to those with a PSA doubling time of less than three months, indicating rapidly progressive disease. Now, this, this finding is actually represented quite well in this, in this, um, you know, in this uh, graphic. As the PSA doubling time declines across the x-axis, the risk of developing metastatic disease or dying from prostate cancer goes up precipitously. And we can see that there is an inflection point somewhere between six and nine months here where the risk of metastatic disease actually goes up quite a bit. Now, we also know that there are a number of different management options for men with biochemical recurrence after local treatment. So M0 disease, by NCCN guidelines, there, there is a the treatment options uh, include orchiectomy, so surgical castration, LHRH agonist with or without antiandrogen therapy, and LHRH antagonist or observation. Uh, we know that intermittent androgen deprivation is non-inferior to continuous androgen deprivation in, in men with biochemical recurrence, but we also do know that individuals with a, uh, aggressive, um, you know, an, uh, with aggressive prostate cancer, many, namely those with Gleason score 8 or above and those with unfavorable PSA doubling times, actually have more aggressive disease, are at higher risk for metastatic progression, and may be best suited for aggressive treatment. So when we, we uh, the, obviously the, the main purpose of this webinar is to discuss the recently updated AUA guidelines in the M0 space. So the, the index patient one in the AUA guideline, asymptomatic non-metastatic CRPC, so we know that one of the first Clinical presentations of CRPC occurs in a patient with a rising PSA despite medical or surgical castration. This is typically defined as a patient with a rising PSA and no radiographic evidence of metastatic prostate cancer. And this is the index patient in whom Prosper and Spartan is relevant. So guideline statement one in the AUA, in the <coughs> guideline amendment, uh, clinicians should offer apalutamide or enzalutamide with continued androgen deprivation to patients with non-metastatic CRPC at high risk for developing metastatic disease. This is considered a standard with an evidence level grade A. So we'll first take a, a deep dive into PROSPER. So PROSPER is a, a randomized controlled trial that enrolled men with an unfavorable PSA doubling time of less than or equal to 10 months. And this is a critically important point 
among both Prosper and Spartan, the men enrolled in these trials were at high risk for the development of metastatic disease. So they had no evidence of uh, imaging evidence of metastatic disease on central review of, of conventional imaging, meaning either CT or MRI with nuclear medicine bone scan. Men had a PSA greater than or equal to two. So Prosper randomized 1,400 men to either enzalutamide, 160 milligrams daily, or placebo at a two-to-one ratio. Randomization was stratified by PSA doubling time, meaning less than six months versus six to 10 months, as well as the baseline use of a bone-targeted agent, yes or no. The primary endpoint of the study, which was alluded to in the pretest, was metastasis-free survival, and there were multiple secondary endpoints, including time to pain progression, time to first cytotoxic therapy, time to opiate use for cancer pain, time to first antineoplastic therapy, PSA progression, uh, the FACT-P global score, and other quality of life assessments. So when we look at the, the uh, primary and secondary endpoints with PROSPER, what we see here is among the ends of those men treated with enzalutamide for M0 rising PSA, M0 CRPC, the median metastasis-free survival was 36.6 months compared to 14.7 months among men treated with placebo, or ADT alone. This corresponded to a hazard uh, ratio of 0.29, or a 71% reduction in the likelihood of <clears throat> developing metastatic disease. Now, when we look at secondary endpoints, median time to PSA progression, 37.2 months among those treated with enzalutamide compared to 3.9 months among men treated uh, with ADT alone. Use of subsequent antineoplastic therapy, again, favored enzalutamide, median time 39.6 months compared to 17.7 months among those treated with placebo. And overall survival, while the study was not, the study was not powered for an overall survival benefit, and uh, the <clears throat> difference failed actually to reach statistical significance. When we look at the, the, uh, uh, the Kaplan-Meier curves here, what we see is that obviously enzalutamide uh, outperformed placebo with a median time, median metastasis-free survival of 36.6 months compared to 14.7 months among those treated with placebo. Similarly, the first use of subsequent antineoplastic therapy, uh, 39.6 months among those treated with enzalutamide compared to 17.7 months among those treated with placebo, again, uh, corresponding to a hazard ratio of 0.21 or a 79% relative improvement. Importantly, when we think about adverse events, these are not dissimilar uh, to those that were seen in the M1 CRPC space. So hypertension was common among folks treated with enzalutamide. Interestingly, the risk of uh, convulsion or seizure uh, was less than 1% in uh, men treated with enzalutamide compared to zero among men treated with placebo, but certainly something to keep in mind when considering treatment in this space. Now, if we move on to Spartan, so Spartan, uh, similar to uh, 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 Prosper, uh, randomized men with non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, Spartan did permit men with N1 disease, namely pelvic nodes less than two centimeters below the iliac bifurcation, were permitted to enroll. Uh, similarly, PSA doubling time was less than 10 months, less than or equal to 10 months, again, uh, signifying a high risk of uh, metastatic progression. Um, men received continuous androgen deprivation while on treatment, and randomization was uh, stratified by PSA doubling time and the use of bone sparing agents, 
similar to PROSPER, but also randomization was stratified based on N0 or N1 disease. Uh, men were randomized to either apalutamide, uh, 240 milligrams daily with ADT, or placebo with ADT in a two-to-one ratio. Spartan uh, it reports the initial metastasis-free survival primary endpoint. So similar uh, to PROSPER, when we look at uh, the results with respect to metastasis-free survival, men treated with apalutamide uh, enjoyed a 40.5-month median metastasis-free survival compared to a 16.2-month metastasis-free survival among men treated with placebo plus ADT. The hazard ratio for metastasis or death was 0.28, again corresponding to a 72% improvement in the risk of metastatic progression. Now, when we look at the secondary endpoints, perhaps not surprisingly, the median time to metastatic disease favored apalutamide, median progression-free survival favored apalutamide, uh, the median time to symptomatic progression also favored apalutamide. <clears throat> Again, Spartan was not powered to detect an overall survival difference. There was a trend towards improvement in overall survival, which did not achieve statistical significance and there was no difference in the median time to initiation of cytotoxic chemotherapy. Now, importantly, um, Spartan did report quality of life outcomes. So the, the FACT uh, P is the uh, prostate cancer-specific quality of life measure. The EQ5D visual analog scale is a more general uh, quality of life measure. I think there are really two takeaways from this slide. The first takeaway is that quality of life is excellent in this population at baseline. Uh, that's perhaps not surprising given the fact that these men have non-metastatic disease and are generally asymptomatic in this disease state. But perhaps more importantly, what we see is that there's really no decline in quality of life on either a prostate cancer-specific or general basis with treatment with apalutamide. So we aren't taking men who are asymptomatic and making them symptomatic with treatment. Again, you know, grade uh, any or high-grade uh, adverse events, more common slightly among those treated with apalutamide uh, than placebo, the most common being you know, fatigue and hypertension in apalutamide. Of note, uh, there was a, re a modest risk of hypothyroidism, 8% among those treated with apalutamide compared to 2%, which is something to note in initiating treatment in these men. So this is a, a, uh, a nice comparison side by side about the uh, trial design and results from Spartan and PROSPER. Again, uh, similarly, the primary endpoint being metastasis-free survival um, right here uh, with hazard ratios of 0.28 in Spartan and 0.29 in PROSPER. Again, very similar, favoring both apalutamide and enzalutamide, respectively. So based on these two landmark trials, the AUA guidelines were updated uh, to state that clinicians should offer apalutamide or enzalutamide with continued androgen deprivation to men with non-metastatic CRPC at high risk for developing metastatic disease. Again, this is considered a standard with the evidence level uh, grade A. There are a number of other guideline statements which were elaborated in the uh, guideline amendment, uh, which I will leave to Dr. O to discuss in more detail. So, in summary, uh, the AUA guidelines now recommend that clinicians should offer apalutamide or enzalutamide with continued ADT to patients with non-metastatic CRPC 
um, treatment with either enzalutamide or apalutamide prolongs metastasis-free survival, and then with a unfavorable PSA doubling time at high risk for metastatic disease. Men with a PSA doubling time greater than or equal 12 months, so men at a lower risk of metastatic progression may consider delaying ADT or intermittent ADT, particularly with a low Gleason score. Again, this would be in the, um, in the castration sensitive, you know, the hormone sensitive state. Quality of life appears similar in men treated with apalutamide as compared with ADT alone. And the FDA has approved both of the, these agents based on a metastasis-free survival endpoint. Thank you very much, Matt. Um, I know that metastasis-free survival endpoint is a new endpoint, certainly for urology and, on, and, and the therapeutics that we've directed at men with advanced prostate cancer. Um, would you like to explain that a little bit more, or maybe William or you, to kind of let the urologists and the, those listening um, get a little more uh, information about what that means? Sure. So, you know, this, the, the use of metastasis-free survival um, is, is a new endpoint uh, considered by the FDA uh, in these two trials, which led to FDA approval. Obviously, you know, the metastasis, development of metastasis occurs more commonly and occurs sooner than prostate cancer-specific mortality. So there are implications here with respect both to, to trial design and moving from clinical trials to eligibility. Um, you know, at the end of the day, as we move these agents up in the, uh, in the spectrum of prostate cancer treatment, obviously the time between uh, diagnosis, initiation therapy, and mortality is longer. So, you know, at the end of the day, it is likely that with the use of metastasis-free survival as an endpoint, we hopefully will see more rapid integration of these newer agents into clinical practice. I mean, I think that this is a very active area. Uh, you know, we created this M0 CRPC state by starting ADT in patients with only a rising PSA. Uh, we never actually had proof, as, as everyone uh, knows, that starting ADT when a man's PSA is going up would have, have any clinical benefit. We still don't really know that answer, but we do know that when they start to develop CRPC, um, the patients and their physicians get very anxious about that. And, and we've, over the many years, used drugs like bicalutamide to try to suppress PSA without any knowledge of whether it's extending survival or preventing a clinically meaningful endpoint like metastasis prevention. So the fact that this uh, was an approvable endpoint for these drugs, I think, was an important advance from the FDA's perspective because, you know, obviously we're exposing these men to additional therapy, sometimes for years, and we had to really be convinced that it wasn't compromising their quality of life, which um, Matt showed in that one study, but also that it's preventing a meaningfully negative endpoint, in this case metastasis. As we see better PET imaging and, you know, finding more and more of these small metastases that we think these patients probably have, I think this is going to continue to be a very active area of research. The other thing that you really pointed out, Matt, in your discussion was the fact that this isn't uh, therapy for all patients with M0 disease, yet you want to target those patients that are at high risk. I think you pointed that out, but it might be worth mentioning again what the factors are you're looking for. Yeah, that's a great point, Mike. So, so you know, I, these studies really restricted, uh, restricted enrollment to men who are at high risk for the development of metastatic disease. So I, I would actually go as far as to say that these studies were enriched for the endpoint that was observed. Um, meaning, 
if we had a number of, if we enrolled all comers with, with M0 CRPC, um, you know, the, the signal, the endpoint would be far less common than I think was observed in this study. So uh, the, the takeaway from Spartan and Prosper, I think, is not that every man with a rising PSA on, AD, on ADT with a castrate level of testosterone should be treated with either apalutamide or, or enzalutamide. But, you know, really folks who are at higher risk of metastatic progression should be treated with these agents. So, you know, PSA doubling time, we know, um, study over study over study, um, has been shown to map really nicely to both the risk of metastatic disease and the risk of prostate cancer mortality. Um, and for that reason, these studies were engineered in a way to treat really the highest risk men, and in both studies it was with a PSA doubling time of 10, or 10 months or less. We have a question also about cross-resistance between um, apalutamide or enzalutamide and abiraterone. Does anyone want to address that? Well, we do know uh, in the metastatic CRPC setting that, um, that there is a very modest uh, response using PSA or progression if you go from enzalutamide to abiraterone or vice versa. Uh, apalutamide has not been studied in this setting. It's, it's uh, approved right now only in this M0 CRPC setting. So we don't know uh, really if apalutamide and abiraterone or enzalutamide would have any cross-resistance. But we would presume that apalutamide, since it has a very similar mechanism of action to enzalutamide, would probably behave very similarly. So these drugs, these three drugs, um, uh, these AR-targeted therapies, probably work in similar ways, similar enough that you don't get a lot of additional benefit when you go uh, uh, at the time of resistance, go to the opposite type of AR-targeted therapy. You, usually one is the most, you're gonna, the most value you're going to get. All right. All right. Well, let's uh, keep moving in the interest of time here. So um, the AUA guidelines were developed with the um, concept of a multidisciplinary panel and knowing that men with advanced prostate cancer often rely on multiple specialists at different times in their care. And so uh, Dr. William O, who's a medical oncologist and the chief of the Division of Hematology and Medical on Oncology at the Tisch Cancer Institute, is professor of urology and um, is at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He's been with the guidelines from the inception on these CRPC and we've been delighted to have his expertise given his wealth of information on urologic oncology in general and certainly specifically when it comes to prostate cancer and advanced prostate cancer management. So he's going to look at the um, review of the AUA guidelines for CRPC in general, and then we'll, uh, we'll have a further discussion. Thanks, Mike, and thank you to the AUA for inviting me to be part of these guideline panels. It's been a very interesting process because we know despite the power of these two studies that uh, Matt just presented, that a lot of what we do in clinical practice is not always guided by level one evidence the way we would like. So at the end of the day, we as clinicians have to take the evidence we have, and the AUA does, I think, a very important service for, uh, for the clini clinicians out there to really provide uh, a pathway forward for having to make the best decisions possible for treating their patients. I want to acknowledge Mike uh, Cookson as well as David Gerard for slides that they help prepare for a similar presentation, uh, much of which is included in this presentation. So uh, as was already pointed out, obviously MCRPC, we understand, is the final common pathway of uh, prostate cancer. If prostate cancer 
can lead to uh, death. It, it usually leads through death through the MCRPC <coughs> clinical state. Um, the median survival has actually probably been changing over the years. It's a hard number to get uh, our handle on because there are so many new treatments, but it's estimated to be somewhere in the two and a half to three year range in recent studies. And um, as we see from this slide, uh, there's an evolution um, from localized prostate cancer to rising PSA states to metastasis in blue. And of course, if you start a patient on ADT in the setting of a rising PSA, then you can get uh, to this uh, non-metastatic CRPC or so-called M0 CRPC state. But if you start a patient on um, uh, ADT in the setting of metastasis, then that's a more traditional pathway getting to metastatic CRPC. But in the end, uh, patients uh, who develop lethal prostate cancer typically have MCRPC um, or often symptomatic, suffer a lot from bone pain and other um, sequelae of metastases and, um, and ultimately, unfortunately, still die from this disease. The treatment evolution for drugs in this state are, are listed on this slide. Um, and when I first started in the field uh, many years ago, we really had no treatments that improved overall survival in the setting of MCRPC. So in 2004, we were really fortunate to have the first treatment, docetaxel, which in two clinical trials improved overall survival. That was a very important proof of principle treatment. And actually, chemotherapy continues to be an important therapy, for example, uh, based on charted and stampede in the hormone-sensitive disease state. But in the end, it had a very modest survival benefit in CRPC. Um, and it took uh, another decade or so before a whole slew of additional treatments uh, listed here and which I'll be going over uh, became approved in the setting of MCRPC. Um, and as you can see, in 2018, the two very big trials that were presented last year, uh, earlier this year, I should point out, uh, were Spartan and, and Prosper, which uh, Matt just reviewed um, in the M0 CRPC state. The landscape of MCRPC is changing, um, and it's summarized in this slide. Uh, you, many of you have seen slides like this before, but basically, um, on the left side, patients start with a localized disease, typically, and receive surgery or radiation, and a significant proportion of those patients are cured. But if they are not, they typically pro progress either with metastases or with just a rising PSA and start androgen deprivation and have a uh, brief period of, um, of, re of response. It could be one year, it could be many years, but eventually they're expected to progress. And you can see in the red box in the middle that apalutamide and enzalutamide, if, they, if these patients have um, no metastasis, is the newest and earliest change in terms of uh, the use of these next generation drugs. And I'm going to focus on um, all of these different areas briefly. This is all data that many of you have seen before because it's been coming out over the last five, six, seven years. But, you, but what you see on this slide are that the drugs have different mechanisms of action. Uh, they may be AR-targeted in the case of Abbey or Enza or apalutamide. They may be bone-targeted in the case of radium. Um, they may be immunotherapy in the case of Cipulus-LT or they maybe uh, cytotoxic chemo in the case of docetaxel and cabazitaxel. And I, I will briefly review this in the setting of the AUA guidelines. Um, you saw this slide earlier from Matt, but I think it, it definitely bears repeating because I think one of the most important take-home messages that we've been hearing now for the last decade or so is that um, PSA doubling time is one of the most significant risk factors for progression. Um, it's true at the time of diagnosis, by the way. It's true in the setting of metastatic CRPC, but it's particularly important in non-metastatic or M0 CRPC because these are patients who are typically asymptomatic. 
So in order to really do the maximum benefit and the least amount of harm, you really should be following the guidelines shown really on this slide where 10 months um, is, eight, I'm sorry, six to eight months is really a, a cutoff where patients develop a much higher risk of metastasis and also uh, cancer death. And so by, by using this cutoff that was um, selected in Prosper and Spartan, you really can um, help to optimize the selection of patients for drugs like apalutamide and enzalutamide and M0CRPC. Um, so this is uh, the guideline amendment panel that was uh, uh, convened in 2018. I was uh, happy to be part of this, uh, chaired by um, uh, William Lawrence, and you see the other members, um, including two of my co-panelists today. And uh, this really reflected the uh, updates from Prosper and Spartan, but it's also an opportunity for us to look at the entire spectrum of, of, of disease um, in the CRPC setting. Obviously, urologists are the key gatekeepers for patients with, um, uh, with prostate cancer. They make the diagnoses. They follow the patients often for many years. And as an oncologist, I think um, I'm privileged to be able to work with my urology colleagues here at Mount Sinai and when I was in Boston as well. And I think, as Mike pointed out, this really is, should be a, and is a multi, multidisciplinary disease. And I think as much as we can, we want to, uh, the AUA guidelines to reflect not only um, the, um, the contributions of different specialties, but really our different perspectives on these therapies. Um, as a reminder, um, the first uh, guideline was really uh, presented uh, back in 2013, and, based, and then uh, three amendments, this is the third amendment, have uh, been put out in 2014, 15, and 18, based on uh, the number of articles seen um, uh, uh, on this slide. And you can see that the five articles relevant to the uh, M0CRPC are the, uh, the key to what uh, changed in this particular guideline. Just as a reminder, the guideline, uh, the AUA guideline system uh, really was developed to uh, identify index patients. Um, this was, of course, to assist in clinical decision making. Uh, these six index patients that were selected for the CRPC guidelines uh, were really uh, developed representing the most common clinical scenarios that we encounter in clinical practice. And they were based on the four factors noted there um, uh, below, and they include the presence or absence of metastases, the degree and severity of symptoms, the patient's performance status, and whether or not they received prior docetaxel chemotherapy. And uh, these are the six patients, and I'm, I'm going to uh, highlight that I'm only going to speak about these uh, four categories, uh, index patient one, two, three, and five. And the reason I'm not going to really speak about uh, patient four or six is that they, those are the two patients with poor performance statuses. And unfortunately, uh, we're still in a um, difficult situation with men who have a poor performance status, lots of comorbidities. Uh, many of these treatments uh, have um, significant toxicities, and, and um, if a patient has a very poor performance status for unrelated reasons, and in particular, not, they may not be good candidates, but clinical judgment really matters for those patients almost more than anything else. So I'm going to focus on these uh, uh, four categories that are highlighted on this slide. Now, again, this, this is, you can't really read this slide, but I just want to highlight that um, there is an excellent uh, flow chart that you can have access to on, on the AUA website and AUA University that really emphasizes um, this guideline. But also in red here you see the circled index patient one. Um, we're going to emphasize this again in my talk, um, even though Matt went over this quite extensively, because this is the most important new change. 
but I will highlight uh, um, the data on the other patients so that you're reminded of what options are available for these patients. And maybe in the Q&A, we can talk a little bit about sequencing, which is one of the most difficult questions and was one of the, um, uh, case, uh, the questions in the pretest. So just as a reminder, index patient one is the asymptomatic non-metastatic CRPC patient. Um, this is a rising PSA, no radiologic evidence of metastatic disease, and the PSA, uh, the PSA working group uh, two uh, criteria listed there, rising PSA greater than two, uh, at least 25% overnator, and confirmed by a second PSA. That's a research definition. M most of us know a rising PSA when we see it. In your clinical practice, uh, these are uh, situations where patients um, obviously have no symptoms um, outside of the, uh, whatever they're experiencing with ADT. Uh, but are extremely anxious and want you as their doctor to, to, to do something. You know, don't just sit there, do something. And this is the challenge for many years, and in our prior guideline, we really had no good evidence that any treatment in this setting um, had any value. So the, the typical thing most of us would do would be to use a first-generation antiandrogen like bicalutamide, but there was really no clear evidence that it was doing anything significant for these patients um, from a clinical point of view. So uh, this is the guideline statement. Uh, clinicians should offer apalutamide or antalutamide uh, with continued androgen deprivation to patients with, at high risk, and, and Matt did a really good job of defining what this was. Uh, you can see that this is now considered a standard recommendation. Uh, that's the highest level of recommendation for the AUA guidelines, and the evidence level is grade A, again, the highest level based on the quality of the trials that have been presented. There were some additional guideline statements published in the setting of this index patient because this may not, uh, uh, this first uh, in guideline statement may not apply to every single patient. So one um, option is to recommend observation uh, along with continued ADT to some patients who do not want or cannot have one of the standard therapies. So what this acknowledges is that clinically there are some patients who may not be appropriate because of uh, comorbidities or because of personal reasons or may not be able to tolerate some of these treatments. And so you can, I think, still choose to offer observation to some of these patients. Uh, in addition, we understand that some, um, uh, some patients and, and clinicians may be resource constrained. Um, and one of the questions we talked about earlier was the difference between apalutamide or enzalutamide, for example, in this setting, and a drug like abiraterone, which many of the uh, uh, clinicians in the audience are using pretty regularly as well. So in this guideline statement three, we, we wanted to acknowledge that some patients, for example, may not be able to have access to a drug uh, like enzalutamide or apalutamide for insurance reasons or other reasons, maybe uh, um, uh, drug interactions, and thus uh, should at least be considered for uh, an alternative drug like abiraterone, which we understand still doesn't have data but has a pretty potent comparable activity in other disease settings. So this is an option with a level of evidence of C, but it is a guideline statement. And um, finally, a question that does come up is whether chemotherapy or immunotherapy should be offered to these patients. And as of now, this is actively being studied in um, clinical trials, but there's no evidence to suggest that chemotherapy, even in a patient with a very rapidly rising PSA who has M0 CRPC, should receive chemotherapy or immunotherapy. So, this is uh, recommended not to offer this at this time. So I'm going to shift to index patient two, uh, which is um, uh, the, the more standard 
patient who first presents with minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic uh, metastatic disease. So this is not M0, but M1 CRPC, the patient who walks in the door um, having not received uh, any of these other treatments, they would be offered either abiraterone, enzalutamide, docetaxel, or cell T. And you can see the levels of evidence. They range from A to B. Um, these are all proven in clinical trials to have uh, evidence of survival benefit. So these are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients. So because the audience is aware of these data and has it's been published and now five years ago, uh, it's hard to believe that abiraterone has been around for that long now. But this was the 302 trial that was in uh, uh, patients who had not received chemotherapy, receiving abiraterone plus prednisone versus prednisone alone. And, and as you remember, there was a hazard ratio for PFS and OS that was uh, 0.53 and 0.75, highly significant, and led to the approval of abiraterone in the pre-chemo setting. And here you can see the OS uh, difference, uh, again, very significantly in favor of using abiraterone plus prednisone. And similarly, PREVAIL uh, was a, a very comparable trial looking at enzalutamide versus placebo in over 1,700 men chemotherapy naive who were asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, and, um, and they were receiving ENZA at the dose noted versus placebo. And again, the hazard ratio for survival was 0.7, meaning they had a 30% reduction in the risk of dying from prostate cancer and a very significant PFS benefit, uh, about an, almost an 85% reduction in the risk of progressing radiographically. And that's shown in this uh, uh, schema, uh, enzalutamide versus placebo. And you can see in this slide, it's a little hard to see, but the PFS difference was uh, very significant, and the OS difference was also uh, significant. Some people look at the OS slides um, like this and they say, well, it doesn't look as big a difference as I would have expected. But remember, in these trials, patients were allowed to cross over to other life-prolonging treatments. So as more and more life-prolonging treatments become available, it becomes harder and harder to show OS differences because many of the patients receive subsequent therapies like chemotherapy um, that might actually improve their survival. So you have to start looking at PFS or progression-free survival in, in trials as these treatments move earlier and earlier. Docetaxel, of course, the drug that started it all, this is the trial that led to its approval. It was 1,000 men with MCRPC uh, and a good performance status that received uh, chemotherapy every three weeks uh, versus uh, prednisone alone. And you see, again, a 25% improvement in survival. Um, and this looks the weakest now in retrospect. But uh, again, you have to remember the era. Uh, there's a subset of these patients who really benefit a lot from docetaxel. Um, so I would not rule out the use of docetaxel in MCRPC. The hazard ratio and the p-value is very significant, a 20% reduction in the risk of dying compared to mitoxantrum, which was the only drug that was available at that time. And finally, CYP-T, uh, which is uh, the first autologous immunotherapy approved in any cancer. This is 512 men who were asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic um, and had a good performance status, either zero or one. And they were randomly assigned to CYP-T or placebo. And they, again, had a significant benefit, a 22% reduction in the risk of dying with a p-value of 0.03. Now, this is probably the most controversial of the treatments that I just mentioned, and I know many in the audience may only um, uh, send a subset of patients for this. Um, I do use CYP-T in my practice. 
um, in a patient who uh, has a good performance status, zero or one, and who has metastatic disease but has relatively few or no symptoms. I'm not going to send a patient who has significant uh, burden of disease, has already received chemo, has already received all these treatments, and is very symptomatic. It's not the right population for this uh, drug. <clears throat> and you can see, actually, that it has a significant survival benefit in this study, a 4.1-month improvement in overall survival with a p-value of, of 0.03. So again, very comparable to the other treatments um, uh, and actually relatively uh, well-tolerated. So uh, that was index patient two. Index patient three is uh, basically a, the same patient who has not had docetaxel but who has symptoms. And if you notice, there's only one drug that really drops out in this, in this population, and that's CYP-T. So CYP-T is not really indicated for patients who, have, um, who actually have uh, very symptomatic disease. So you have to recognize that if the patient has a lot of bone metastases and a lot of pain, CYP-T is not an appropriate option. But all of the other treatments, Abby, Enza, or docetaxel, would be considered an option. And then, in addition, if the patient also has both primarily bone metastases, they would be a candidate for uh, radium-223. So I think the audience understands that radium-223 only works in bone metastases, um, not with patients with visceral metastases. You are allowed to get radium if you have a small amount of uh, lymph nodes but generally speaking, this is primarily for patients who have significant bone metastasis. And as you can again see here, uh, if you should really not offer either estromustine or Cipulus-LT to patients who have symptomatic CRPC. This is the radium study that led to its approval. As a reminder, it was 900 patients who had, uh, with CRPC, symptomatic bone metastases, no known visceral mets. They were allowed to receive docetaxel, they could also receive concurrent bisphosphonates. Um, and you can see that uh, some patients were getting so-called best standard of care. They may have been receiving, for example, drugs like uh, bicalutamide or even ketoconazole. Uh, they should not receive chemotherapy with radium. And it's a monthly injection, and they got six total treatments. You can see that if you had lymph nodes up to three centimeters, you were allowed to get radium-223. And again, uh, all of these um, uh, Kaplan-Meier curves start to look very similar to each other, uh, but it was uh, these are patients who had, were fairly end stage. You can see they had a median survival in the placebo group of only about 11 months, and um, the, uh, there was a 30% reduction in the risk of dying with uh, radium-223. And many of you have probably uh, ordered this and sent the patients to your nuclear medicine or, or uh, radiation oncology colleague, and you re recognize that for the most part they tolerate it reasonably well. As a reminder, their PSAs will not go down with radium, so uh, if patients are looking for PSA declines, they will not necessarily see them with radium-223. And then finally, index patient 5, um, as we move to the right in that original graphic, are symptomatic patients with MTRPC and a good performance status, again, 0 or 1, but who have received prior docetaxel. Now, this is a tough area because uh, many of these patients will have probably already received abiraterone or enzalutamide, um, and, um, and if they haven't received radium, that isn't a choice for them as well if they have primarily bone metastases. However, the one new treatment in this category in index patient 5 is a second chemotherapy called cabazitaxel. And cabazitaxel was approved on the basis of this trial, the so-called TROPIC trial, and you can see it was pretty large also, over 755 patients, and it was, again, 
uh, a similar survival benefit. It was uh, 2.8 months uh, in terms of overall survival. And if you look at the curve, again, the hazard ratio was about 0.7, a 30% reduction in the risk of dying. So, um, so we do use cabazitaxel in patients who have exhausted the other options. Um, and it does sometimes have a very significant um, uh, survival and also progression-free survival benefit in these patients. So I went through that very quickly, but most of that should be familiar to, to uh, many of you. I just want to remind you that there really are clear evidence-based therapeutic options for CRPC, um, that multidisciplinary care truly enhances outcomes. I think that that's really quite clear. And these a updated AUA guidelines uh, pr primarily focus on index patient 1, M0 CRPC, and they reflect this very powerful data from Prosper and Spartan in the non-metastatic setting. And I think uh, this is a chance for us to continue to help our patients live as long as possible with as li uh, little morbidity and as uh, good a quality of life as possible. So I'm going to stop there and thank you. Uh, I just want to acknowledge the members of the panel, uh, the original panel chaired by Drs. Uh, Cookson and Keibel, and the amendment panel uh, chaired by Dr. Lawrence. It's really been a wonderful experience to work with the AUA staff and, and with my urology colleagues and oncology colleagues in, in uh, preparing and updating these guidelines. Thank you. And now, um, in the time we have allotted left, there are a few questions. I'll just um, open it up to our panel. One of the questions was, um, is there an option for chemotherapy in the M0 state? And so, Let's, uh, let's address that. Uh, I can take that. Uh, the answer is no. Uh, it has been studied, but there's right now no evidence that chemotherapy can prevent metastases or otherwise delay progression. It also has uh, quite a bit more toxicity than some of these hormonal treatments, so right now the answer is no. Yeah. And I will add that the AUA is currently assembling for a new guidelines that will be management for patients with advanced or hormone-sensitive disease where in the face of metastases, uh, there is, you know, a new role for chemotherapy as well as some of these um, androgen access agents, particularly um, abiraterone. So that will be addressed, but, um, you know, the M0 or the non-metastatic uh, space is still um, an area that really doesn't have good evidence uh, for use of uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy. Um, William, did you want to talk a little bit about the sequencing question, I know we don't have definitive answers, but just generally, you know, how you view that question and what you do in your practice? Yeah, for the most part, uh, a single AR-targeted therapy is going to be the first thing most people will try for CRPC, either abiraterone or enzalutamide. And then the real question is what next? Um, in some patients who are relatively asymptomatic, I may use a drug like uh, T. But if they're progressing quickly, chemotherapy, I think, is an important option. Unfortunately, a lot of patients are undertreated with chemotherapy. And I think uh, what the hormone-sensitive setting has shown us is chemotherapy probably does have value, not for M0 CRPC, but for uh, MCRPC when the cancer is growing quickly. So that's where you really, I think, for the urologists who are, are, are attending this session, you really want to involve your oncologist at that time. Uh, radium does play a role, and I often use it after chemotherapy in a patient who has bone-only mets. Um, if some patients are reluctant to consider um, uh, chemotherapy, then I will think about a drug like radium. What I really try hard to do is avoid giving uh, Abby and then Enza, or Enza and then Abby, because the evidence suggests that that sequence is not particularly effective. Matt, um, there's a couple of questions about is 
one of these new agents M for M0 better than the other? And how do you uh, determine any caveats in using PSA when you're following these patients? That kind of question. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think with respect to the first question, which is better, enzalutamide or apalutamide, uh, you know, I think the answer is we don't know. I mean, the, the estimate of effect for both of the, the clinical trials is actually remarkably similar between the two agents. Um, you know, which at the end of the day, you know, the, 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 the cohorts were similar and, and I suspect the effect is similar. I think similar to the decision making in M1 CRPC, there are nuances with respect to cytoprex profile that, that can be leveraged to drive treatment decision making. I think certainly in folks with neurologic disease or seizures, avoiding enzalutamide is important. Um, you know, I, I think it's otherwise a bit of a dealer's choice. The, the question with respect to PSA is a good one. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think there's really consensus with respect to what's the trigger. I mean, I think reading between the lines, the question is what's the trigger to switch treatment? Um, you know, I, I will say that, that myself and my partners here at Vanderbilt, I mean, many of us will watch PSAs go up um, without switching therapy, um, whether that is between, you know, AR-targeted agents or between classes of, of agents. Obviously, you know, PSA rise is PSA rise, and I think that the doubling time both pre- and post-treatment can be leveraged to guide that decision-making, although, you know, I, I will say that most, most folks that I know don't use PSA alone to trigger, you know, real market differences and changes in treatment. I don't, I don't know if uh, William or Mike, you guys have different experience or recommend, um, you know, different strategies to your patients. Well, that sounds like the way I would do it as well, Matt. Yeah, there, there, two last, final quick questions. Uh, do either of you use um, splice variant testing, ARV7, to guide therapy in your CRPC patients? Um, that test has just recently become commercially available, but I actually have not used it yet. If you do it up front, uh, it's going to be a very low rate. If a patient has not received abirenza, you're not going to have a positive test most of the time. Um, if you really want to give a patient a second AR-targeted therapy after Abby or after Enza, it would be reasonable to consider as an alternative to just starting them on it. Uh, there are some patients who really have no other options, um, and if you really wanted to consider, let's say, Enza after Abby, then it would be reasonable to send an ARV7 test. Okay. And then a final question on these agents and the two studies that we highlighted. Do, is there any information on overall survival for the trials? I suspect the overall survival endpoint will be published. I, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know where that stands um, in terms of follow-up or publication. Remember, these patients are so early that so much is going to happen to them over the years. Uh, so it may not be a reliable endpoint, although they are going to be followed for OS. I think Matt's point that, um, you know, basically, as we shift earlier, OS is going to be harder and harder to be a meaningful endpoint for these patients. Okay. Well, I want to thank our panel for their um, outstanding talks. So I want to thank everybody for their attention, and I uh, hope everybody has a great day. Thank you, everyone. Thanks very much.